Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, all the way from Derry, Northern Ireland, Glenn Hines. Hi, Seb. How are you doing, man? Doing all right. Good, good. As always, uh, let's have a quick update on our social media platforms and places that people can find us. On Twitter, it's at Change Talking. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. And for questions or comments or queries about trainings that we offer, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Rates and reviews are appreciated of all varieties. And we, we have been getting some requests or at least uh, suggestions for future episodes. We do get those from time to time. We do try to follow up on most of them. Sometimes they don't end up in an actual episode, but please keep those coming if you all have some ideas about that. We've had some fun ones recently. So before we move on to introducing our guest and, and getting on with the episode, recently we've been thanking some people that have become involved with the podcast in the last several months. So first we want to thank Brian Hartzler and his team with the Northwest Addiction Technology Transfer Center. Brian and his team have provided us with some financial support for the podcast to enhance it and prolong it and to offer some ideas about how to reach broader audiences. So that's been very helpful. And also in the last couple of months, we have hired a sound editor, actually, Tessa Hall is her name. So we appreciate all of Tessa's hard work helping us produce our show for you all. Without further ado, we will move on to our guest, who is someone actually uh, most people in the MI community will be familiar, certainly with the name Paul Amrine. Uh, but maybe if you're not familiar with the name, then you most certainly have been affected by Paul's work, uh, since so much of what we do in MI is focused on the language of change and what clients say and what do they mean what they say and, and all these sorts of things. So um, we welcome Paul Amrine to the program. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. We often start with kind of a broad opener, just inviting the guests to share with us a bit of their own background. But then with for you in particular, it'd be very interesting to hear your story of how you got involved in the MI world and your subsequent work with Bill Miller. In graduate school, I was trained as a psycholinguist. A psycholinguist is someone who studies the psychology of language, why people say what they say, why they comprehend what they hear. My first tenure track position was at the University of New Mexico. Of course, Bill Miller was there. The story goes, because it has become a story, that I noticed in my first year that Bill was on sabbatical to Norway, which was a big year for him, I realized, in his story. And I was about doing my pretty basic experimental psychology research. But my dissertation had been on commitment and commitment language. And what is it that in a conversation causes a person to evaluate a commitment in terms of how strong it is 
or how weak it is. And I was able to publish my dissertation work, uh, but I didn't know where it was going to go after that point. This was just everyday language users. One day, Bill Miller comes down the hall after coming back from his sabbatical, knocks on the door, and he says, Paul, he says, uh, I hear you study commitment, commitment language. I said, yeah, I did my dissertation on that topic. And he said, well, I'm, I'm working on this thing called motivational interviewing. This is about 1993, 94. And he said, uh, I wonder if you'd be interested in collaborating on a grant proposal. Well, here I was, a, a tenure track a junior faculty member, and the idea of collaborating on a grant proposal was just like perfect. And I was always interested in clinical but I was not trained as such. And so um, I didn't realize the stature of Bill Miller at that point. He seemed like a really nice guy. And we seemed to somehow really communicate well. And so we wrote this grant proposal together. And it was a, a larger project, the MIDAS project. And it was a, a design of tracking MI and had, I think it had two arms to the study, a treatment group and a control group. And it was looking at whether MI would facilitate a change in individuals using illicit drugs. My contribution was to find a way to code and analyze the talk of these sessions. And when we received news that it would be, in fact, funded, this large project, I remember asking Bill, I said, I said I would do what? And I realized I had to invent a lot of things in short order, which was a coding scheme, uh, a mode of, of uh, data compilation, data analysis, and then a way of interpreting all of this. And so what happened then, this is 1995, the project begins. What happened was I ended up doing that, and it became known as this coding scheme called DARN-C, which is a coding scheme that looks at talk in terms of certain categories, desire, ability, uh, reasons, readiness, need, and commitment. And it's a system that codes not only the frequency of utterances that a client or patient might utter uh, or produce, but also the strength of those utterances. And what I tell people was it must have been an inordinately long stoplight in Albuquerque one day. I realized it would be really interesting if I could look at change in the talk, change in the change talk from beginning to end of a therapy session. But I knew that the therapy sessions varied in length. And so I realized I needed to standardize that. So I thought, ha-ha, deciles, 10 units. So now I had a way to the process of talk uh, during MI. And so with that uh, in mind, I was lucky to have two very bright graduate students uh, who I trained in the coding system. Uh, we then set about coding 84 sessions, double coded, had lots of information on these patients. We also had their outcome information. We analyzed the data and this ultimately became the 2003 paper. We found in that paper was of course that the strength of commitment talk was predictive of drug use uh, for the next year. So my connection to Bill Miller has been amazingly fruitful. And we've had great conversations over the many years, uh, all about talk in MI. It was interesting to hear you say yourself that your own response to the commitment that you had made or you thought you made and what it was actually when it came to fruition, how much, how much actually more you thought you would have to do. But what... Again, most people who are studying MI will recognize the significance of the acronym DARN-C. And from what you're saying is that, that from that meeting with Bill, that it has expanded just from moving from just understanding what people are saying that leads to change, but also 
the strength of the talk, and I'm sure we're going to discover the time points of that change talk is also important. You used the acronym DARNC, and I'm just wondering, can you just say a wee bit more about what DARNC means and, and tell us a bit more about what you've been discovering about what each of those means in a, in a conversation with a client? DARNC derives from my background in pragmatics, linguistics, speech act theory. The idea here is when a person makes a verbal commitment, now I was mindful that MI was about strengthening commitment uh, to change. So commitment is seen as the endpoint of you know, the kind of language that, you, that a patient or a client should be hearing themselves say. So in speech act theory, the idea of a good or strong commitment is that there are other things that are in place. So the person wants to do something change. They feel able, they, there's a need, they have reasons for this. They're ready, now is the time. And so that's the darn, and then the C is the commitment. Now, I augmented speech act theory. Speech act theory typically focuses more on desire and ability, but I knew that for MI, reasons talking, certainly readiness and need were important things to include there as well. And in speech act theory, the best commitment is one where everything is strong, where everything is strong. So you strongly want to, you strongly feel able, you strongly have a need, strongly feel ready, you have strong reasons and thus a strong commitment. So that's my breakdown there for you, for darn C. Ultimately, it became what we code for in the talk. So in the coding scheme, which I think a lot of people may know about, a coder will look through a transcript or listen to a session, and they'll make note of really three kinds of information. One is what kind of category does this fall into of the darn C categories? Might not even be that, but usually it's one of those five categories, six categories. What is the valence? Is it talk about change or talk about staying the same? And then finally, the third aspect that's recorded is how strong. Just for uh, simplicity, uh, we code the strength from zero to five. Zero being extremely weak, five being extremely strong. Now, there's one thing here that I need to point out is that my coding scheme is about talk. It's not necessarily change talk. Change talk is part of the story but sustained talk is the other part. And so I thought in my system it would be useful to have one number with a category letter that assigns really everything all at once, the category, the strength, and the valence in terms of whether it's change or sustained. Now, as we know in the literature on change talk, first of all, when people talk about change talk, usually they're referring to just that, talking about change. But for me, the full story has always been the full story. We also need to code the sustained talk and find some nice unitary way to reflect where that person is on a scale from very much sustaining to very much changing. In that sense, a statement to think about the A in darn C for ability, someone could say, I'm totally going to crush this. I've got this. Or someone might say, I'm a total loser. I've never been able to do anything in my life. Those are both part of the story, as you say, they both reflect ability talk. It's just the valence, I suppose, is quite a bit different. And a person could even say, well, I make a good salary. I can still buy my beer. And that's saying I'm still able to sustain. Or I can drive drunk. I don't have any problems with that. And so they, they are able to function while drinking. So the full story is the story, at least in my approach. There's an opportunity then for us as practitioners when we're thinking about a reflective listening 
and potentially even our affirmations that even when someone is using sustained talk, we can notice the strength of the individual, the character, as they describe their ability to drink and drive and do be safe. We may not be agreeing with the decision to do that or the behavior that they're following, but it sounds like you're, you're quite assured in yourself and you're very, you're very aware of the decisions that you are making uh, and what's important to you. For the therapist, it's important, as you know, to, to choose what to reinforce in terms of your reflections. You, you have to be careful not to reflect too much about sustained talk as it goes, because you don't want to look like you're affirming that they're going to keep on drinking, per se. You don't want to reinforce that, but you have to acknowledge it so that you convey to the to client, I am listening. I do hear you say that you're able to keep drinking. So maybe a simple reflection works there. I may be able to talk about this later, but how important it is that the therapist is listening to everything that they're saying, as opposed to just seemingly listening just to the change talk. What happened is the patient will feel the demand characteristic. I, gotta, I can only talk about changing here. It's the only thing the therapist seems to be listening to, responding to, reflecting. And all of a sudden now that's not a, that's not a real honest therapy session anymore. It does seem like a really interesting controversy might be too strong a word for this, but um, it, it does seem like there are some people who feel like, you know, you really do need to do a bit of reflecting the sustained talk because that's the person's true experience. And for them to feel heard and to be in line with, say, the acceptance part of the MI spirit, if you're only reflecting one side of the ambivalence, then it, it's going to feel like half of a conversation maybe for the other person. Maybe here's, here's where it's going to lead to a bit of a, a question for me to you, Paul, is what seems to be the take home from a research standpoint from all of your work and subsequent work around change talk and its predictive value is that we really want to focus on the change talk because that's what seems to predict the outcomes. And in addition to that, the less sustained talk there is also seems to be at least what people might think uh, or their understanding of the research is that's also predictive of quote unquote positive outcomes. So maybe this would be helpful for you as far as your understanding of it. And of course, you're a big part of this, this part of the MI story, I should say, is what is your, or maybe what were some of the findings from that 2003 paper that was so influential in the MI world and maybe any subsequent findings psycholinguistically that help inform MI practitioners that are out there working day to day? For me, the biggest findings in that earlier work, and again, this is predicated on the idea that you're working with therapists that are well-trained in MI, because we did this at CASA in Albuquerque. We were lucky to have that. And so what we saw was what, when MI is delivered with high fidelity, what the client sounds like. And it turned out that there were specific, well, there, first of all, there are two issues, two things that are, arose in commitment strength. Um, and it was the strongest predictor of the other, relative to all the categories in DARNC, commitment strength was the most predictive of drug use outcomes. Two things that appeared in the, in the, uh, in the data. One was there was a clear trend in the talk from beginning to end of session that commitment strength does in fact rise actually in everybody regardless of their outcomes. There is that MI does strengthen commitment talk. You can see it happening. That's at the, at the group level. If you look at individual clients, that was not always the case. There were some clients for whom it just, it just wandered. 
Sometimes there were clients for whom the commitment strength just was like a monotonic straight line up. Other thing that uh, we looked at in that earlier work was the specific topics going on from decile to decile to decile. In that work, the topics could really pull down or pull or push up commitment strength. That kind of finding is great if you know you're running a, a specific kind of therapy or program where there's, it's manual driven. We go from this topic to this topic to this topic to this topic. But as you and I know, oftentimes it could be caused by the therapist, could be caused by the patient or client. The topics will, could change abruptly. They could, the, cho- the topics could be recycled. And so it's always easy to say, you know, we're going to stay in this topic for this moment and, 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 and we're not going to change it just to see what the, the client's talk is like. The safest bet, what I've learned from that research and because of all the studies since then, is that look for the trend. Look for the trend in the commitment strength. And if you can do specific topic analysis, that's great. But in most most settings, uh, it's going to be very difficult to actually say, and at the fifth decile, we're in this topic. Uh, I mean, you can disaggregate if you want to do that kind of uh, qualitative analysis. But for what matters, I think, to a therapist is do I sense that there's an increase in that commitment? And yes, attend to how the thing ends. Does the patients, the clients talk, fall off the planet at the end? Do they become very ambivalent all of a sudden in their talk? I don't know. We'll see. Or do they maintain that nice flow to the very end? Change in the change talk. It's not just, you know, one of the problems with a lot of the studies on change talk, I'm going to say it, is that there's been like this notion of, of that you can just take the aggregate of the full session. And, you know, what's, what's the commitment talk or change talk frequency for a full session? Let's see if that predicts outcomes. How the person's talk changed in that session, you know, when you, when you ignore that information, you can have two people have very different trends, but their, their, their aggregate numbers are the same. One person flat, the other person rose. It's looking more and more that that change across session that elevation and strength. And it could, doesn't even have to be just commitment talk. It can be all those categories. Everything should rise if there's going to be something good in the outcomes. So change in the change talk. A lot of what has happened with the study of change talk has also been that of focusing on frequencies. Like I said, aggregate frequencies. But frequencies of talk. I think it's easier for researchers to think about frequencies of change talk because it's behavioral. We can point to it. Strength is very subjective. It's more cognitive, emotive, but I think it's more of a nuance, and uh, I think it is more difficult to train encoders. But yet, we know when a person's uh, showing more emphasis. I'm doing it now. I mean, there's a lot of variables that come at us, right? I mean, there's more, there's faster speech, there's pitch of the voice goes up, but there's also the choice of the words. And so, in my research, I assess both frequency and strength. I have found that strength to be more is more sensitive. I mean, predicting outcomes and more poignantly, the change in that strength is more sensitive in predicting outcomes. And what kind of talk uh, do you find more compelling to listen to? Think about that. Is it, is it stronger talk? The work that you do and, and the papers that you've developed, it sounds like the, the way that those are understood and interpreted are going to be influenced by whether or not I'm a researcher or whether I'm a therapist. It sounds like researchers are looking for certain things in certain ways to fit with the, the research that they're doing, whereas a therapist is essentially trying to be helpful. And as people who are offering support to individuals with different difficulties, it sounds like 
continuing to attend, it sounds again, it's just that reinforcement that you're saying, look, if really listen, but if you're listening, here are some of the things you may want to tune into to notice, is the tone of voice changing? Is it going up when it, when they're talking about change? Or is it going up when they're talking about staying the same? Just pay attention to that type of thing. If you see, and if you do hear change talk, if you hear more commitment or more energy in the darn or the sea, pay a bit of attention to that. Offer some reflections, encourage elaboration, get them to talk about that a bit more to see if, they, if that increases and if the intensity deepens. Because as we go along the session, the likelihood is that's going to strengthen. Ideally, it's going to be strongest near the end because as I commit to something near the end of the session, your research shows that I'm more likely to leave the session and actually act on that commitment than I would have had it started and then faded away near the end. It might do a therapist well to actually reflect on the client's strength. It sounds like you're talking more strongly about this than you were when we began today. And, and then have the, the client comment on, yes, I, I feel stronger now. Well, maybe we can loop back to that topic that we touched on briefly there, and maybe you can expand on it a bit, which is a bit of the dilemma that a clinician might have when someone is expressing both sides of their ambivalence and this decision that a clinician now needs to make about what to reflect, whether to reflect only one side or the other. And, and maybe it does have to do a bit with timing in the session and that maybe that influences the decision as well. At least that's what I, my hunch is. But what, what are your thoughts about that? In the beginning of a session, there's a lot of information gathering, especially if it's the first consult, first visit, right? Lots of information gathering. And so a therapist might start out with, uh, you know, hi, what brings you here today? And often that's the, the moment where the patient, the client talks about, uh, you know, they lost their job, the children were taken away from them. They're going through a messy divorce, and, and they're beginning to talk about, at, at some point, their substance use. I think the two-sided reflection may be one of the best friends a clinician has, uh, in the sense that if they let the client talk about their use, and if, if they think their drug is helping them through their divorce, just let them say that. There could be a, a moment where a therapist might say, well, tell me what life was like before you started drinking, or when you aren't drinking. And if they start saying, well, you know, when I don't drink, uh, I don't have as many arguments with my, my wife or my, my boss or whatever. And then you got your double-sided reflection set up. You can say, so on the one hand, drinking helps you get through your marriage. But on the other hand, uh, you know, when you're not drinking, you find you can have better conversations, better communication and so forth. So maybe a good way to deal with sustained talk is to build it into a two-sided or a double-sided reflection. So you're saying, I heard you say that the alcohol helps you but I'm not going to reinforce that this is a way for you to continue. We have the opportunity. We have the choice about where we turn the volume up or turn the volume down in our reflections when we're speaking to people. But, but again, you're reinforcing. It's really important that the individual feels that whatever they've said has been heard and understood by us for them to feel engaged in the process. And we can then choose which bits we reflect back and, and very important which bit we reflect back last to lead into the conversation. It seems almost like simple reflections are really good in the beginning of a session. As more information is gained, the complex reflections have become very important tools. In the beginning of a session, you want the client to feel that, yes, I'm in the room, I'm sitting next to you, as we say in MI, right? I'm collaborating with you. 
I don't care where you are in your life, how you feel about it, I'm here, I'll listen. And I had mentioned uh, this reflections to questions ratio, comprehensive indices we have when we assess how a therapy session is going in terms of how the therapist is delivering. It turns out to be a very important variable in determining whether the talk of the client actually predicts the behavior of the client. Many, may, many folks will know about the Miller and Rose model, the relational hypothesis of MI that lays out the theory of MI, really, which is there are therapeutic skills that evoke patient or client change talk that produce behavioral outcomes. It's really an understudied model or theory. And one of the things that has not been studied very much is specific indices are doing to not only the evocation of change talk, but also whether the change talk uh, evoked is actually leading to outcomes. RQ, which is a simple ratio of how many reflections a therapist has uttered over uh, how many questions the therapist has posed to the patient or client. Ideally, you want parity in that, 1.0, for those individuals who have used the MIDI to actually code a therapist's MI session. 1.0 is that first level of expertise. But what does 1.0 mean? 1.0 means just as many reflections as questions. If, and what we've seen in a lot of our training studies, oftentimes R to Q is, doesn't get to 1.0. It's usually less than 1.0, which means there are more questions being posed to the client than reflections given back to the client for answers to those questions. Does that do when you have less than 1.0 for your R to Q when there's less than parity? There's a big disconnect between the change talk and what behavioral outcome you're going to see in that patient or client. From a qualitative standpoint, what does that mean when R to Q is less than one? I, the client, I'm being posed more questions than I'm hearing reflections from a therapist. I don't think the therapist is listening to me. I may want to get out of this room as quickly as I can. I want to save face. I'm exhausted. You can lose the session so quickly if the client feels not feels uncomfortable. There's, it's very important for the client to feel listened to. It's not only in terms of the, the, what's being reinforced or not being reinforced, but also some other more structural things like number of reflections over number of questions. In some ways, it makes perfect sense. I, I've never quite thought of it as the R to Q ratio being a stronger catalyst for the patient outcomes outside the room. I've always just thought of it as a measure of therapist skill. But then of course, well, skill for what? <laughs> it's skill to help the patient or the client leave and hopefully uh, make some positive health choices. And, and I guess one way of thinking about it too is we often use the phrase, well, people occasionally or often use the phrase that the client is just telling us what we want to hear. And so often that phrase comes out as a criticism of the client, but the way you described the role of a question-heavy session, the client's just trying to get through this experience of feeling probably a bit controlled and maybe coerced. And why should we blame the client for doing that? If, if we're signaling what we want to hear, maybe that's something that we need to be more careful about and therefore use that as sort of a cue to kind of shift more to the reflection side. I found it really helpful just to think of the RDQ ratio as a strengthener, I, I guess, of client change talk. What's fascinating is that it doesn't necessarily 
relate to the strength of the change talk. It relates to whether whatever strength there was actually predicts the outcomes. So if you come, if you're come out of a session where you're just exhausted from being pummeled with questions and you don't think your therapist was listening, you're going to say, what was that about? You're going to default to your sustained level or get worse. The heck with therapy. Even the client leaving thinking, what, what the heck was that about? That could be categorized as sustained talk in itself. Okay, uh, or well, leading, yeah. leading, certainly leading to less likelihood of them wanting to do anything with or for us immediately after a session or in the future. I guess for, for people who listen who practice MA, it's, it's again, as I said, I was noting there, it's, it's really interesting to, just for ourselves to be curious, when we think about our sessions, how many questions are we asking and how often are we reflecting? And what you're, you're, you're describing is a good place to begin to try to get to is that for every question, you've offered at least one reflection. As your skills and your awareness and your empathy grow, then chances are you'll start to see that even increase more from one question maybe to, in, to include maybe two, maybe even three reflections before the client hears another question. But again, what you're saying is it's that question reflection scenario for a, a ratio that is, is the client is experiencing us attending to them and feeling listened to and then ideally moving towards us and beginning to explore things from their own perspective with someone who cares about who they are and the challenges that they're facing without them feeling threatened or undermined or judged. And, and at that place, then they go, well, you know what, maybe I, there are some things I could do for myself. And it's that themselves hearing that, it's that change talk. The client hearing their own change talk as much as us as practitioners, I think is very important for us to recognize as well as that's the client talking themselves into change. The other thing I want to point out is because of the process of an MI motivational interview, no doubt there's going to be more questions posed in the beginning because you're collecting information. And then there should be more reflections as you move towards the end of the session. Like you have to artificially, okay, that was my question. Here comes the reflection. You don't have to mate those things all the way through. Just be mindful of, okay, I've asked a lot of, asked a lot of questions of this client. Now let me give some reflections so they know I'm hearing them. It's, again, this Reflection can be very useful early on by saying, I've asked you a question. You gave me something. I, yes, I heard you say this. I heard you say this. Until you have enough information, do two-sided reflections or, or, or summarizing. Yeah, do save those for later. Overall, it should feel like it was a balanced session. As a therapist, I questioned the person as much as I reflected. So, well, we know that reflections are where the work is, of, of a, especially from the therapist's perspective. Uh, the reflections are the are can be to see the key that open up to new thoughts, new approaches, new plans, and so forth. But certainly, you don't want to reflect when you don't have any information. I don't know what that is. It's just, it's, it's odd for a therapist to start reflecting on you when you don't even they don't know who you are, right? But if they keep asking questions at the end, it's like, didn't I tell you enough? It's good for a therapist to think about what it's like to be that client over there in that chair, on that couch. If I was that person, how would I feel about this session and how it's going right now? That'd be very informative to the therapist. Wow, I don't know. This therapist seems pushy. This therapist seems very sensitive and showing a lot of MI spirit. That's fine. But always sort of do, a therapist should always do an online assessment of their own performance vis-a-vis, imagine if I was that client. One of the points you made, you made it quite clear that the 2003 paper was a study 
of client language, but using well-trained MI therapists, you said, right, right, in the context of conversations with clients who had difficulties with alcohol and illicit drugs. As you, I'm sure, know, clinicians from all walks of life, uh, professional life, have change talk as an important element in their work. It's something that organizes their work, whether they're a physician talking with someone with diabetes in a primary care center, a correctional officer talking with an inmate, a coach talking with one of their athletes. And I wonder if you could speak a bit to if we know, know anything, quote unquote, from research, or if there's reason to suspect that this phenomenon of change talk that you and Bill and others worked on and found some interesting results in the alcohol and drug world, uh, treatment world, might it also apply? Do we know that? Or are there reasons to suspect that this isn't just isolated in this one particular clinical setting? Most of the literature it still pertains to substance use because I think MI was developed out of the treatment of substance use or for the treatment of substance use. But in terms of coaching, in terms of eating behaviors, exercise, change talk seems to still be, it's still important. It's still important. The one advantage that you have with substance use is that you have, you can have very objective dependent measures. You can do urine panels. You can do blood tests. You can, besides self-report. And so you can get a, a pretty objective assessment of whether there is a relationship between what happened in session and what the person's doing with their behaviors. When you're looking at uh, things that aren't as obvious as objectively assessed, that may be where the, some of the studies aren't as strong. But from my perspective, talk is talk. Change talk is something much greater than psycho MI than psychotherapy. It's, it's all about how we as humans get through life. It's how we attain some level of joy or experience that satisfies a need. I think change talk satisfies the need to get the things we value. I just did a review of all the meta-analyses of MI. Not all of them look at change talk, but it, I don't see a reason why change talk is less pertinent, pertinent to that approach. It comes down to really making sure that your therapists are delivering high-fidelity MI. I think that's really the most important. And any study, it doesn't matter what the behavior is that you're you're trying to change in your clients. The question is, is that high fidelity MI coming across? Is the client being genuinely attended to? Is there engagement? Well, in empathy and spirit. I mean, there's going to be variability, even with sessions, certainly uh, across clients, uh, but certainly in training studies, in MI training studies, the, the greatest amount of work is getting a therapist to get to a point where their art of Q is 1.0. Very difficult. If you look at the MI training studies, often the, the target, the benchmarks that CASA puts out for the uh, mighty indices are not attained. And then there's SAG. Therapists can begin to drift away from their MI skills. So whenever you're reading a paper about uh, MI being used to treat non-substance use, substance use behaviors, you always have to read critically about how well-trained were the MI therapists and what are the, how objective are the outcome measures. And also keep doing more research on those topics. Motivation interviewing, while done well, is, is very efficient and, and can bring about some fantastic results with our clients. In and of itself, it's, it's quite a difficult skill to master. It takes time and practice to really 
experience and understand the spirit and to integrate the skills in a way that is about the well-being of the other person rather than my own motivations as a practitioner, as a helper, wanting to be helpful and thinking my ideas are great and overcoming all of those very traditional challenges that, that most of us who went into helping went into with a good open heart. But my desire to be helpful doesn't make me helpful. It sounds like I need, we need to be trained to translate our desire into a, a commitment. You can have a great heart and still have weak skills. Right. The other thing that's really tough in, in therapists when they're being trained in MI is it's not just learning something new. It's inhibiting the old stuff. It's inhibiting what you might have been trained with initially, plus your own habits of always going down a certain path on a conversation. You know? Therapy's just as much, therapy's a lot of work for the client, but it's a lot of work for the therapist too. It's an admirable skill to have, but it takes constant work and, and you have to be wary of drifting. Are you falling back on old habits as a therapist? And that sort of thing. So I was just going to say, we as practitioners, as we develop our skillfulness and whatever, whatever approach we're using, it's recognizing that we are, we are ourselves going through a change process. And if we monitor that ourselves, potentially offers us some understanding of why our clients are behaving the way they're behaving because yeah. they're going through a change process themselves, themselves too. And, and recognizing while we are trying to change different behaviors, the change process itself is identical. We're having to do things. We're having to work at this. And there are lots of influences both within and without ourselves that are influencing our willingness and our ability to move and stay moving. One other interesting way of looking at this is what makes change talk? I mean, technically change talk is recordings of the utterances of the, of the client, but really change talk is a construction between the therapist and the client. There are things being said there the client probably wouldn't have said elsewhere. Certainly there are things that the therapist wouldn't have said elsewhere. What gets constructed there is so important in terms of what will happen next. It's what gets constructed is what the therapist brings to the room, what the client brings to the room, and what happens in that interaction. Everybody's learning in these therapy sessions. They're learning about how to talk to somebody new. And that construction is, is very precious, and it has a major impact in what that client will do later. But should never think they don't have an impact on their clients. It's a very important, powerful position to be in. It really highlights something. I, I, I'm quite certain I've read this in one of Bill's writings, I think even his first MI paper back in 1983, where he sort of called out the drug use treatment industry of, of being a bit unfair with how we perceive successes in drug treatment outcomes, that it's sort of because of the program or the therapist. And then the failures, of course, were because the patient was in denial or resistant or some other mm -hmm. negative term. And Bill really painted a nice picture of it, which I think your use of the term construction and even the, the visual image that, of course, people can't see listening to this podcast, but you, you had your fingers intertwined. And it really emphasizes that this is something that happens between two people. And it's, it's not just about whether the client decides to change or not, or uses a phrase or not that fills, fit, fits in with the darn C. And it's also not as simple as whether I ask, what are the top three reasons for you to cut back on your drinking? There's something that happens between those two people, I suppose, a bit of a dance to use that metaphor that we often refer to MI as. Listening to 
I suppose processing that last piece around coming back to that human relationship. It could be so easy for us to consider change talk and the conversation about Darncy and all the technicalities of all of that. Mm-hmm. But what you're what you're reinforcing is is that yes, there there are technical things we can be considering, and certainly as researchers, these things are very important and interesting to us. But ultimately, these things that we have identified, these technicalities, are seeded in the relationship and between two people. If anything else, if you practice being human with someone, then chances are these things are arising anyway. As you said earlier on, this is talk, and people are using darn C in everyday conversations, whether they're sitting talking to a motivational interviewing practitioner or whether they're talking to their mom or dad or brother or sister. They're talking about their lives, they're talking about their aspirations, they're talking about their desires, they're talking about their instinct to become bigger. And part of what what you have done is identified, here are some of the ways people talk about wanting to be bigger as people. And if we can hear those and use certain skills in our conversations with them, then the likelihood is, is that they will become bigger in our company during the time they're with us, which goes very Rogerian and that creating the space, creating the environment for growth that's within the client to arise. What we're doing is we're creating an environment for the growth to to manifest. And what you're saying is, listen for this, this, and this, and this, because that, that's what it sounds like. The finger point on the moon's not the moon. The darn sea's not the change. It's the, the, the person and the relationship that they're having with us. There's this dynamic quality of a therapist session, a therapy session. And my work has captured some of that dynamism, but it is a nice measure of the growing of that alliance between the therapist and the client. I don't believe that client would increase their commitment to change if it weren't for the therapist being with them, you know? And so I think you're seeing, you see a lot of, read a lot of articles about their therapist client alliance and so forth. But I think it, it is, it shows up in the darn sea as a measure of that alliance. There's so many factors that can determine that trend and that commitment strength. But one that you always want to make sure is working in the client's favor is that the therapist is creating an alliance as best they can. We talked about the R to Q ratio as one thing that certainly researchers can track and and maybe in less sophisticated or precise ways that a clinician, even in session, can have somewhat of a sense of the balance that they're striking. Are there other MI specific skills that you know that have a positive relationship to change talk or client outcomes, or maybe even not specific to MI, but that you know about from other therapies, some of the other work in the therapy literature that could inform MI practitioners. I'm thinking, for example, of the affirmation, which seems to be getting a bit of buzz recently in terms of its ability to predict change talk. At least that's my, without having the paper in front of me, understanding of what people think might be happening. But anyway, just wondering what your thoughts are on that. The uh, MI consistent, the scope studies, affirmation increases uh, change talk frequency. I'm thinking more basic things like empathy, the racial relational scales. Empathy, at least in one of our studies, was related to the rise in commitment strength. But empathy also seems to have a curious relationship where it also makes contact with whether or not the change talk is predictive of outcomes. Empathy is like this surrounding kind of skill 
you don't count empathy. But of course, as you might expect, uh, you know, empathy, uh, I mean, a lot of these measurements, relational and technical measurements of MI are intercorrelated. And so if you have a high R to Q, you're probably going to see it related to higher empathy. R to Q actually takes in four of the behavioral counts of a therapy session, right? It's simple and complex reflections and open and closed questions. So it, it takes up a lot of what we count. The interesting research further on that is other specific kinds of reflections in the R to Q that matter more in this relationship I've been talking about. Is it the ratio of complex reflections to open questions? Then, of course, we're not even talking about content here. What about reflections about change? Reflections about sustaining, right? We haven't looked at those ratios yet either. But uh, so there's more work to be done in terms of R to Q itself, but also just the more general relational scales, the, the global scale of empathy is a big predictor as well of talk. But again, it's certain vulnerabilities that a therapist should keep in mind when they're talking about their skills and relating to what their patient is saying and doing. One vulnerability is whether the skills are producing this talk. Another vulnerability is whether this, these skills are l- allowing that talk to connect to the outcome. Just one thing, talking about it in the room, if it's not connected to what they do next, chances are it'll fade away. The weakest link in, in the model of MI, the, the Miller and Rose model, the weakest link is between what the client says and what they do. There's all kinds of years and week, weeks, days, weeks, years in between what they say and what they do. And they to their environment that has been reinforcing their substance use, their eating behaviors. That is also the most vulnerable link, link but that's probably the one that has to be, the therapist has to be most mindful of. What's happened in this room? Is this going to transfer to the outside? So while we're having this almost like microcosm of the, of the client's experience, we then have to invite them to open, open that up and say, okay, so you're describing this. How will that work for you when you go back out? What are the challenges for you? What are the opportunities? Who's there with you? Who may get in your way? So when they start to, to have use change talk and begin to explore moving towards the planning aspect of the four processes, part of the, the thing for us as practitioners to be considering when we're assisting the client plan is, where are the difficulties that may arise in your previous experiences? What has gotten your way and how might you overcome that in this time? And that in itself leads to more potential change talk or insights to sustain talk or the issues that may slow the progress down when they leave. Right. And of course, that's interesting you bring that up because that was a major finding of the 2003 paper, which was the topic, typically, you know, in terms of what happens at the end of an MI session, the topic, okay, we talked about your plan, how will you know your plan is working? How if your plan is not working? Which is talking about that transfer to when you're out there, what's, are you going to, how will you assess yourself? How will you monitor your behavior? Uh, and uh, if you do monitor behavior, your behavior, how will you know uh, about this plan? How will you know, you know, maybe this plan needs to be worked on some more now? So yeah, that was the 10th decile. That was the most predictive portion of the therapy session was. Now think about this outside. How is this going to work? If people don't remember that decile is a measure of time points within the session. The ending minutes of a session. This question might be beyond the scope of a a linguist, but maybe you have some thoughts of this, or maybe you know some literature out there. You, You were mentioning a little while ago about the task that some clinicians have to maybe inhibit previously learned behaviors that if 
now what they're trying to do in their careers or they're part of a study is to be more, am I consistent? You know, so there's this challenge of inhibition of previously learned clinical behavior. And I, I wonder if that speaks, if you could speak at all to whether, you know, more veteran clinicians, people that have been working in the field and they're 50 years old and they're like, Hey, here's this cool thing called MI. Let me try to use it versus somebody who's like fresh out of graduate school and has never really been in the trenches, so to speak. And so there's less inhibition needed. And if there's anything to the idea of what predicts a good MI therapist, I know that's a way oversimplification and there's no way to answer it really cleanly, but I don't know, just your thoughts on whether experience matters positively or perhaps negatively. It seems like listening skills, reflecting, I would suspect that the therapist who's been in the field for a long time has stayed in that field because they are actually good at reflecting. It's hard to think of any therapeutic modality where reflections don't happen. It might be difficult for a pure Rogerian to begin to be more directive. It would seem that you'd want to have very customized supervision of someone who's retraining and where the supervisors know what the person's past training has been, what the modality of choice has been, they've been delivering to their patients and clients over the years and be mindful of, no, you're going, you're going, you need to be more directive. The client's meandering here, that kind of a thing. And I, I suspect that the seasoned therapist is also has a high level of empathy. I mean, I don't think he'd be a therapist very long if he didn't have good empathy. On the other end of the developmental scale of therapists here, yes, you would think that it would be, it'd be a lot easier to learn MI as your first therapeutic modality. But it's, you'd have to be, the supervisor there would have to be more mindful of such things as, does this person have empathy skills and they need to develop listening skills? And that work of coming up, listening for what you need to make a good reflection and then being able to construct that reflection and then knowing when to time it. The veteran knows how to do that. I think the graduate student trainee does not yet. Whatever stage of the journey you're on, whether you're a novice or well-established in your 50s like myself, that if you are deciding to add into your toolbox and then it sounds like the best thing that you can do for yourself is to ensure that you're not trying to do it by yourself, that you use the expertise of someone who already knows how to do it to help you develop the part of yourself that needs developed. So yeah. potentially as a younger person, you may need support with the empathy issue or the containment. And later on, it's about letting go of the old ways or introducing some of the new ways into integrating them into some of the ways you already do things. But feel good that you have skills already to bring. Right. Fantastic. And I have no doubt that as people listen to this, more and more questions are going to be arising for, for them. And as we always do, Paul, we ask the guest, if people haven't listened to this episode, are curious to find out more from you, are you happy for them to contact you? And if they are, how do they do that? Of course, and email works. It's PA2146 at columbia.edu. So let me just check. It's PA2146 at columbia.edu. And one of the other questions we also then ask, given the fact that we've been in this technical world and, and really interesting part of understanding motivation, to be, we also then ask the guests, you know, what else is happening other than necessarily work that's capturing your attention at the minute uh, that we could talk to you for a few minutes about? Short trips, wearing uh, an interesting mask. Right. Okay. What constitutes an interesting mask for you then? Any interesting pattern or some uh, some deity from the ancient Near East? 
<laughs> so, so, so do you have a wardrobe of, of face coverings that, that go with your outfits, Paul? Well, first of all, part of this is, is, is my wife's doing. So right. uh, wardrobe, yes. Um, probably need a closet just for the masks now. It's become quite an industry out there if you're on the internet. It turns out there are a lot of nice outdoor art museums and, and exhibitions in the, in the Northeast of the US. And uh, you, you fill up the car with gas and off you go. I think that's our way of re-entering normalcy here. So that's what we're, we're doing because otherwise I'm just at home with, with data. It's nice to get out. Part of the adaptation that we are all trying to figure out, whether you're in the Northeast, the, the Mid-Atlantic mm -hmm. or South for me, uh, all the way across the pond for Glenn, we're all adapting and changing. And, and it sounds like you're discovering maybe some things that you wouldn't have sought out, uh, these sort of outdoor art galleries that you were describing. I wouldn't call this, call it a silver lining, but it's almost shiny. Yes, yes. So this isn't your first choice, but you're enjoying it to some degree. Exactly. It's far better than sitting in the house with all that data. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, and I guess a lot of people will be recognizing that, as Seb said, is that this is a global circumstances. And I suppose one of the things that came up for me, and I'm sure it would be a lovely question to ask sometime in the future, is I imagine that when you're listening to the news or you're listening to reports, is part of your ear tuned to the way people are talking and you have a, a sense of mm, that's not going <laughs> to, that's not going to happen. You know, are you listening to politicians and you go, they don't mean that. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to avoid the, the news as much as possible. <laughs> right. 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 Yes. Fantastic. That, that's a sound wellness program probably uh, right there. News it's working so far. It's working so far. Yes. <laughs> Good. Well, Paul, thanks so much for joining us. This has been uh, really, really interesting. And, and I um, am hopeful that this will be a, uh, a very interesting opportunity for people to learn more about you, learn more about your work, which has been really quite influential uh, in the lives of so many of us, both clinicians and our clients. So thank you. Thank you very much. This has been great fun. Fantastic, Paul. And out of curiosity, are you a tweeter or do you have a Twitter account that people could follow? If no, 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 no. <laughs> email is good. Right. Fantastic. And we are 21st century guys ourselves. It's, uh, we have, well, we have younger people running most of our accounts, to be honest. But our Twitter account is Change Talking. Our Instagram is Talking to Change Podcast. Our Facebook is Talking to Change. And again, if you have any questions or uh, reflections on anything that you've heard in this or any other episodes or you're interested in the training that we offer you can contact us on podcast at glennhines.com save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get 16 ounce packs of flavorful angus 90 percent lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious coca-cola pepsi or seven up all with your card Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.